saga was like a soap opera. You get in on this side. Uh, in two weeks, Professor Finkbein will be back again. And the ongoing saga is that I took an astronomy class with Professor Trinkline in 1974, and we are yet to figure out what grade I got. <laughs> he says that I have a C plus. Yeah, a C plus, and I'm telling you that it was definitely a D. And see, now his, his future is hanging in the balance here at Vernon's Inn because he may never approach this place again at the rate we're going here. But well, we're trying to get a change in Massa Community College where I took the class. But, it, but we're delighted that he's here. Uh, again, in two weeks, he'll be back. We'll be having, and also over Labor Day weekend, we're going to put a big astronomy program together for Labor Day weekend. So if you're interested, you want to come back, we're going to try to put together some seminars. We're going to be talking about it, working together. We're going to have our ongoing astronomy program, which is three nights a week, usually Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We have viewing through the Celestron Telescope which is out on the Skipper's Landing. If you're interested, you do not necessarily have to be a house guest to get in on looking through the telescope if you're in the area. We're delighted that you're here and you're at Bernie's Inn and you would be more than welcome to come and look through the telescope if you're in the area. So without much further ado, with, for me it's very difficult, I would like to introduce <laughs> Professor Trinkline. Thank you, Bob. So far, I can definitely tell you the points for your grade are piling up. <laughs> and whether there will be any continuing extra credit points all depends on how well this goes over tonight. <laughs> now, the last appearance here a month or so ago was called Rambling Through the Universe. And we tried to do absolutely the impossible, and that is to cover the entire subject of astronomy in one evening. But now that it looks as though we're going to do this more frequently, we're going to take smaller chunks of the universe at a time. And what I'd like to do this evening, as you saw on the program and the announcement, is to talk to you about life elsewhere in the universe, or as it is officially called by the U.S. government and the American taxpayer, SETI, CETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Now, how much of that search is going to be conducted depends a little bit on the budget in Washington and so on. But this evening, I'd like to divide the program into several parts. The first of these is to tell you what has been done so far in looking for life elsewhere in the universe. Then, what the chances are of finding life elsewhere and as a corollary of that, we might talk about what are the chances of finding intelligent life on the Earth. And we will take that subject up during our question and answer period, because last time things got pretty late in the evening, and I want to stop for questions every so often instead of waiting until the very end. And the questions that we're going to talk about do not have to relate specifically to the topic that I'm addressing, but if you're dying to ask something about astronomy generally, just fire away. And the last part of the program will be on the plans that are being made to search for extraterrestrial intelligence in the future. Now, this is a very good time to talk about the subject because the movie E.T., which is the middle of the program I'm talking about, S-E-T-I, C-T, E.T. is a very popular film and a lot of people who haven't thought about the question before are now asking how probable and likely is it that a creature of this kind that we saw in the film is lurking somewhere 
in the universe and is going to be abandoned here on the earth and then we're likely to meet him when we come home after a late party of some kind. So to address that question and to get the uh, topic rolling for this evening, we will now first of all get a kind of an overview on what has happened in the search for extraterrestrial life in the past. The question of whether there is life elsewhere in the universe, of course, is a very old question, and I suppose as old as the history of mankind. Whether we are alone, are we alone in the entire universe? While the first serious modern effort to find other intelligent beings in the universe does not go back very far, only about 20 or so years, when in the year 1960, two professors of physics and astronomy by the name of Morrison and Cochoni came up with the first idea of how we could possibly contact such beings or how in turn they might contact us. You see, this search for extraterrestrial intelligence takes two forms. We have to look for them or they might be looking for us. In other words, how should we go about contacting life out there? Or the corollary is, if they're trying to contact us, how are they going to do it? And what should we be looking for? So before the evening is over, we're going to talk about UFOs as well. And what I'd like to bring you also is a very recent update on this question because I've just returned from a national convention in Peoria, Illinois, of the Astronomical League. The Astronomical League is the largest convention or organization of amateur astronomers in the country. Now you say, why amateur astronomers? And I can tell you, and I imagine I'm talking mostly to people who are not professional astronomers. I see the hands of professional astronomers. I have to be careful what I say then. Amateur astronomers are actually in a position to do more than professional astronomers in many of these topics because, number one, there are more of them, and secondly, they're not hampered by budgetary restraints. If you're an amateur, you can spend all of your own money, you know, you don't have to ask the administration in Washington. If you're a professional astronomer, you have to worry right now whether enough tax money will be available to do what you'd like to do. So I'd like to give you an update of what astronomers around the country are thinking on this question of extraterrestrial intelligence as of about two weeks ago. But back to the idea where it all began in 1959 or 60 with the two professors, professors Morrison and Cochoni. These two men came up with the idea that has set the pace for all searches for extraterrestrial life. And that is, they decided and recommended a wavelength on which to communicate. Now, you know, if you want to talk to somebody else by radio, you have to decide, or by CB in your car, which channel to tune in. Now, if you're on CB, you know you're supposed to start on channel 19, breaker 19 and all that. And then if you want to talk privately to somebody, you'll say, well, let's go down to channel 15 and we can have a private conversation. Well, it's not so private because everybody else will monkey around and find you on 15 and listen in on you anyway. What assurance do we have that if we broadcast on channel 19 into space, that someone else is going to be listening on channel 19. 
Well, not a very good possibility, is it? There are just thousands and thousands of wavelengths to choose from. So which one should it be? We haven't got the time or the money to broadcast and listen on all frequencies. Now to send a light signal is out of the question because light does not go far enough. Even as far, for instance, as Mars, a light signal from Mars would hardly be detectable here. In the past, there have been ideas, for example, that if we want to contact Martians, and that's maybe where it all began, maybe there are Martians out there and we want to talk to them, or maybe they're invading us in the war of the worlds. To get the attention of Martians, what we might do is put some great big sign on the Sahara and spell out, hi there, or something like that. And if they then come back with mind your own business or something, then we know, number one, there are people on Mars, and number two, they're not friendly. Why is it? You know, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence reveals more about us than about the people out there. Why is it that human beings are universally afraid of life in outer space? Why is it that we're always afraid that they're going to come to invade us? One person I heard on this subject said, the first thing we ought to do if any form of foreign life comes down here from Mars or elsewhere is to shoot them down to see if they're friendly. <laughs> now, anything foreign, you see, anything different, we're worried about. But think about it a moment. Why would anyone out there go to all the trouble of conquering the Earth after looking it over first? <laughs> Who would want to bother? Many people believe that there is intelligent life out there and that these forms of intelligent life have checked the Earth out and have given it up long ago and have gone elsewhere. Imagine the radio signals we've sent out since the discovery and invention of radio. I mean, if you were out there, some form of intelligent life, and they'd have to be smarter than we are, else how could they pick up our signals? They'd have heard gangbusters. They'd have heard, well, you know all the other programs, the soaps, when television came, and they've watched this now for maybe 10, 20, 30 years. What intelligent form of life would decide to come here and take over the earth. That's one approach. People who say there is life out there, but they've long ago given us up. Well, then it's up to us to contact them. If they're so smart, and only smarter life can contact us, you see, if they're, at least, if they're 50 years dumber than we are, they couldn't come here. Because we think in 50 years from now, we can go there. So if they're 50 years smarter than we are, then we better get in touch with them because they can teach us something. If they have enough money to send a mission to Earth or send some kind of signal here, they must have been able to divert their entire defense budget. In other words, they must have conquered war long ago, and therefore we better get in touch with them and find out how they accomplished that. That's the other chain of thought, you see. Even though they bypassed us, we better get in touch with them right away or we won't survive because we're not doing a very good job now. We're destroying each other. We're in danger of nuclear annihilation and all this, whereas those other civilizations might teach us how to avoid this. 
Now this is all philosophical, you see. The question of who's out there, have they bypassed us, and can we learn from them and all this. The question that now remains is, how should we get in touch with them? How can we correspond? And now again back to Morrison and Caccioni. Without getting into a lot of technicalities, and if anyone is interested in the physics of this problem, we can take a little time after this evening or maybe the next time I come here to explain how this particular wavelength was developed on which we're going to communicate. But Morrison and Caccioni said, if we're going to get in touch with life in outer space, we should do it on the 21 centimeter band. Now, if you have an FM channel, you know that it goes up to 108 or so. That's 108 megacycles. That means a frequency of 108 million vibrations a second. Well, 108 megacycles is still a wavelength about like this. Well, Morrison and Caccioni said we've got to go up higher than that. We have to go way beyond 108 megacycles because there is a wavelength called the 21 centimeter band that is mutual and common to the entire universe. I'll show you this in a picture in just a minute. The reason that 21 centimeters is the wavelength of choice of astronomers in the world today is that it is the wavelength that is emitted by hydrogen gas. Hydrogen gas is the simplest atom there is. And we think that most of the universe, 99 plus percent of the universe, consists of hydrogen. Hydrogen is broadcasting at 21 centimeters. And if you could take your FM dial and get up high enough to the 21 centimeter band, you could hear static. That static is coming from the universe. No matter where you point it, you'll get 21 centimeter static. Consequently, Morrison and Caccioni said, if anyone is trying to reach us, they would be interfering with the 21 centimeter band of hydrogen, and we could detect it. So every radio telescope on Earth that is trying to find intelligent life in space tunes to the 21 centimeter band of hydrogen. That was the beginning of the search in 1959 when these two men said, that's the band that we're going to try to send on and that we're going to try to receive on. Well, the first effort that was made to find life out there was made the following year. And the man I'm now going to mention is very important in this field. His name is Dr. Francis Drake. Francis Drake is a professor of astronomy at Cornell University, and we're going to hear a lot about him this evening. He is also the co-worker of Carl Sagan. They are professors of astronomy at Cornell. Frank Drake, in 1960, said, if 21 centimeters is the band of choice, he's going to take a telescope and aim it at two of the nearest stars in the universe. Now, one of the pet questions in astronomy always is that I like to put on final exams in college, name the nearest star. And the kids are all raking, racking their brains, what is it, which one of these, Alpha Centauri or whatever. Well, the answer is the sun. The sun is the nearest star. How far away is the sun? It's 93 million miles away. How far away is that? It is so far that it takes the light from the sun eight minutes to get here. If the sun would go out, you'd still see the sunlight for eight minutes. So you'd have eight minutes to get out of here to some <laughs> other planet where it's warm. One of my students 
I told him someday there should be an expedition to the sun. The trouble is it's so hot. But the student had the answer right away. He said, naturally, we'd go there at nighttime. <laughs> now, the sun is the nearest star. It's eight light minutes away. A light minute is the distance that light travels in one minute. The nearest star past the sun is 4.3 light years away. That means the light from Alpha Centauri that you can't see here on Montauk, you have to go to Florida to see it, takes four years to get here. That doesn't mean to travel there, it means it takes that long for light to get here. Well, the two stars that Frank Drake picked in 1960 are known as Epsilon Eridani, or Eridani, and Tau Ceti. Now, that doesn't mean much except if you know that the catalogs of stars are made by constellations. The constellation Cetus has a star in it that is named Alpha, Beta, Gamma, and so on until you get to Tau. It's very dim, but it's nearby. It's only 11 light years away. That means light takes 11 years to get here. So, in 1960, Frank Drake decided to start beaming signals at this star, not because only it was close, there are closer ones, but because that star wiggles a little bit. Now, why would a star wiggle? Possibly because there's a planet nearby pulling on it. Can't see the planet, it's too far away. But just in case there is a planet that's making it wiggle, and just in case it's inhabited, you can send a signal there. Now, mind you, it would take 11 years for your message to get there, 11 years for that civilization to answer you, in other words, 22 years for the answer. If you add 22 to 1960, you know what you get? 1982. So our first answer to the first signal from Earth into space would come this year. Now, when Frank Drake first started sending that signal out there, he was very discouraged because he didn't want to wait 22 years for the answer. He was very downhearted, and the story goes that his mother came once while there was a tour of the observatory and she was bragging about her son, the great astronomer, sending the signal out. And here Frank Drake was sitting there, very dejected looking. And his mother said, well, what's the matter, son? And he said, well, I'm sending signals out here, and I won't get an answer for 22 years. That's very discouraging. And his mother came right up with the answer and said, son, that's not discouraging to your mother at all, because every mother knows that you can get on the telephone, and you don't have to wait for an answer. You just keep talking for 22 years. And then after that amount of time, all those undiminished signals are going to start coming back, and you have 22 years of answers. I must tell you that 1960 was before the time of the ERA amendment and all this, so it may not be a very good joke today. But in 1960, it was that Frank Drake's mother encouraged him to keep sending, no matter whether there's an answer or not. Well, we haven't received an answer yet. So what came next? What can we do next? Well, after 1960, we started sending spaceships into space, and some of them have left the solar system. Now, I must say, first of all, that we have not found any form of life, intelligent or otherwise, in our system of planets. We used to think there may be life on Mars. We have now sent a ship to Mars and have sent pictures back Either the life on Mars is hiding under the rocks where the television cameras can't see it, 
or else we haven't landed the ship in the right place. But even by scooping up the dirt on Mars at great taxpayer expense, we have not found any kind of life on Mars. Even though the temperature is not too bad, even though there is water on Mars, we haven't found a thing. We have not found any life on the moon. In fact, as I mentioned last time, we know less about the moon now than we did before we went there. We used to think we knew all about the moon. Now we went up there and found out we don't know. And when the first astronauts came back, remember they, Apollo 11, they put them in an isolation trailer. It was an airstream, I believe. There was some little advertising there. But they found that even after keeping the astronauts for 20 days in the isolation trailer, no germs grew on them at all. And since then, they didn't have to stay in the isolation trailer at all. There isn't a single germ on the moon. At least the 12 Americans who have gone there haven't caught a cold or anything else. We were first afraid that some form of life would come back that would spread through the earth and destroy us all, as in the book, The Andromeda Strain. Well, this isn't true. Then we've gone to Venus, and we've gone to Jupiter, and to Saturn, and we looked at a moon of Saturn, Titan, that was very much like the earth in terms of its atmosphere. And most astronomers today are convinced that there is no life in the solar system except on the earth. Now, things are beginning to narrow down. As somebody has said, if there is life in outer space, it's mind-boggling. And if there is no life in outer space except on the Earth, it's even more mind-boggling. Because then we're in charge of the only form of life in the entire universe. That's the question we want to explore this evening. What does that mean to us? If we find it, or if we don't find it. So, no life in the solar system. Therefore, we had to wait for the first ship to leave the solar system. And that was Pioneer 10. Pioneer 10, which left the Earth in 1971 and took two years to get to Jupiter, to take the first close-up pictures of Jupiter. Three weeks before Pioneer 10 left, Carl Sagan asked the government for permission to put a picture on board because Pioneer 10 would become the first man-made object to leave the solar system. And if that's the case, someday somebody might find it out there and would like to know what we're like, these people who sent this thing out there. So I want to show you the picture that is the first message of mankind to outer space. Now the blue writing is mine. That's not on the message. This picture has a great deal of science in it. And as Sagan has mentioned, he only had two, three weeks to make it up. And then Mrs. Sagan did the painting. And it was then inscribed on an aluminum plate, six by nine inches. And it was put on Pioneer 10 and on Pioneer 11. Actually, Pioneer 11 got there first because it was a different orbit. But both of these ships have since passed Jupiter and have gone out of the solar system and are on their way to some distant, hopefully planetized star system. Now, what does it say? If you were to send a picture somewhere that somebody might pick up, what would you say on it? Well, first of all, you'd want to make sure that it would last long enough, that of the millions of years that might be required for this picture to reach some other form of intelligence, it should last. So 
So they put it on a gold anodized aluminum plate, five or 51 thousandths of an inch thick, and then engraved it to a depth of 0.015 inches, 15 thousandths of an inch. Now, by the known rate of erosion in space, 15 thousandths of an inch will last longer than the expected lifetime of the solar system. In other words, this will be floating out there after the Earth is gone. Now, what does it say? First of all, there has to be some kind of yardstick on this thing. And that's the picture over here. These two circles, first of all, have inside them this upright symbol, which is a binary number designation. In other words, in binary computer language, you have two symbols, a zero and a one. Any two symbols will do. In this case, it's an upright line, which means the symbol one. A dash in the other direction would be a zero. Now, you have to put yourself in the place of a, a civilization that will pick this up. First of all, we hope that they're smarter than we are, or as smart. Unless they're as smart as we are, they won't even bother picking it up. They're not going to be out in space looking for junk flying around. But in case they pick up Pioneer 10 and 11, they'll come back to this picture and they'll say, now what is this over here? Well, if they are as advanced as we are in science, they'll recognize this as two atoms connected with each other, as in hydrogen. Hydrogen is the simplest element in the universe. It so happens that hydrogen, as I said before, emits a radiation at a wavelength of 21 centimeters. Now that can be deduced, and as I say, if people are interested in the physics of this, I can answer that after the session this evening, that the lowest form of energy emitted by hydrogen is that which is emitted when a hydrogen atom and its electron do a flip-flop from a straight-up spin to another straight-up spin, and that's what these two lines on top mean, and that gives off a photon energy equal to the 21 centimeter band on FM. Now, the people pick it up won't know for sure, does that mean 21 centimeters, or does it mean the frequency of the band, which is 1470 megacycles, or megahertz? Well, so they'll look around in the picture elsewhere, and they'll come over here, and they'll see that here are two upright lines and a dash. This is the binary designation in computer language for the number 8. Now you'll also notice that on the top here, on the top of the woman's head and at the bottom of her feet, there is a designation of her height. If you take the 8 binary here and multiply it by the 21 centimeters over there, you will get the height of an average woman. Now in case that eludes them, they will also see in the background this picture of the Pioneer 10 and 11 spacecraft with the antenna coming out here and with the nuclear power source and the whole works here in relative size to the two human beings. This is a reinforcement of the 8 times 21 centimeters, which is the height of a person. So now they know that they've got the right 21 centimeter secret or decoding message. To help figure out where this thing came from, there's a picture down here of the solar system. The sun, 
Mercury, Venus, and the Earth, with a line going from the Earth, past Mars, past Jupiter, and out. So it shows the spaceship was launched from Earth, past Mars, Jupiter, and then into space. Then comes Saturn with the ring. Then comes Uranus. At the time this was launched, we did not yet know that Uranus had a ring, otherwise there'd be a ring out here. We now also know that Jupiter has a ring, there'd be one there. We think Neptune has a ring, so we ought to put one there. And out here is Pluto. So that's the solar system. But what about this over here? Well, now we know everything about the thing except when it was launched. And this starburst here is a series of 14 lines in specific directions with binary designations at the end, which can be deciphered to mean the periods of 14 pulsars. A pulsar is a star that is dying. When a star dies, it begins to rotate faster and faster and send out radio signals. And these radio signals keep changing. And so as the pulsar decays, it will have a specific radiation frequency in a specific time in history. And only in one particular time in history will all 14 of these pulsars have these particular periods. So that, when these people plug it into their computer, they'll find out that the thing was launched in 1971. The most sticky part, of course, was what kind of human being should they show? First of all, notice that it is not any particular ethnic personality. Mrs. Sagan tried to combine all the races on the earth into two people. They naturally didn't want to show any clothes on them because that would date the fashions. They don't want to send up a particular kind of uh, Macy's or whatever else clothing. That was the reason given. There have been jokes about this where it showed cartoons in the paper, people in outer space and some planet are picking this thing up and he says, Mabel, hey, look what we just found here. These people are just like we are, except they don't wear any clothes. Now, notice that the man has his hand raised. The reason is not that he's indicating he's coming in peace, but this is one way of showing that the person has an opposable thumb, which distinguishes the person as a humanoid. So there we have the first message into outer space of a pictorial nature. Up to this point, Sagan and Drake only sent out radio messages. Is there somebody has a question about this because I'm sure you've seen this picture and may not be familiar with certain of its features. Now what are the chances that this is going to be found by anyone? Well, as I say, it is designed to last for millions and millions of years, but it is not aimed at any particular star system. It doesn't have a target. So the chances of being found are not very good. Consequently, there must be a better way to do this. Well, in 1974, a message was sent out from the largest radio telescope on Earth. Now, a radio telescope is like an optical telescope, only much bigger. An optical telescope, the largest one in Russia now, is about 240 inches across, and the reason that it isn't any bigger is that we can't make pieces of glass much larger than that without the thing collapsing. But if you want to listen to a radio broadcast, I've already mentioned 21 centimeter band is about this long. You need a much larger dish 
to pick that up than you do an optical one because light waves are only a millionth of an inch or so across. So to get the same receiving power on a radio antenna that you do with a mirror, the radio antenna has to be many, many times larger. To get the same resolving power that you have in the 240 inch in Russia, for example, you need a radio telescope many miles across. Well, the biggest radio telescope on the surface of the Earth at the present time is in Puerto Rico. It's 1,000 feet across. One dish, one bowl, one receiver, 1,000 feet across. That means three football fields end to end could be placed inside this telescope. Now, if we're going to send a message, that should be the instrument with which we send it. Well, in 1974, that particular instrument was refurbished. And for three minutes during that time in 1974, Dr. Drake decided to send the most powerful radio signal into space that had ever, had ever been broadcast. You see, instead of just receiving radio, you can also send it. Instead of just receiving a light into a telescope, you can send out a laser or some other form of radiation. And here's the signal. This time, it was aimed at a specific place in space. It's the one on the left that I'm talking about. Now, what in the world does that mean? Now, I put some red writing in there, which isn't so easy to read anymore, but I'll take you through this. Again, the best way to send a signal is by the binary system. That means on or off, zero or one, black or white, whichever way you want to interpret it. Now, a signal that is sent out is sent sequentially, just like a television signal. The, the FM channel goes out continually, but your receiver takes it and chops it into parts so that it goes across the screen and then quits and comes back and paints the next line and the next line is called a raster. Now, a raster on television, in the United States at least, has over 500 lines. That means there are 500 separate lines in your television screen. But you have a receiver <coughs> that tells you when to chop the line off and start the next one. Now, when we send a signal into space, how will the people in outer space know where to chop the signal off and start the next signal? Well, they won't. They'll have to do it by trial and error. And we hope that after a while, they will decide that by putting it together in many different ways, it will start making pictures. And then by the picture language, they can tell what we're trying to communicate. Well, first of all, on top here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, are the ten designations for the numbers from zero to nine in the binary computer language. Then comes a series of other things here that refer to certain chemicals on the Earth. This is a phosphate. Um, this down here is a DNA helix, the basic form of life on Earth. You come down far enough and you see a little figure of a person. This is an Earthling over here. Down here is a picture of a telescope. So at least we've gotten this far now that we have taught them the binary system from zero to nine and we've got the picture roughly of what we look like and a helix shape which is our basis for biological life. 
Now, how likely is it that people are going to be able to figure this out? We don't know. But if we don't try, how are we ever going to know? The discouraging part of this signal is, even though it's 10 million times as strong as the sun, if they listen to us from out there in the 21 centimeter band, they'll all of a sudden get this tremendous three minute burst, much stronger than from our own sun at that distance, and hopefully they'll record it. But the unfortunate part is that the thing at which we have aimed this picture this time not at random, but somewhere where there are a lot of stars, is about 30,000 light years away. Now, does it make sense to send something that will not get there until long after we're gone, and the reply will not come back until long, long after that? Do we have the kind of funds and willingness to do this? We're used in the United States to getting results, you know. We want to talk out there and get an answer back. Well. Pure research doesn't work that way. You want to do something just because it's worth doing. This is Frank Drake's argument. This is the reason he's asking the Reagan administration for funds to carry this out, as I'll explain later. How much does it cost to send that signal out there? Is it worth it compared to the defense program or to social welfare or whatever else we have to balance the money against? How much do you spend on pure research? Well, just to see whether there's intelligent life on the Earth, can you see over here anything that is distinguishable? There's another message. I can tell you in advance that no one person has ever deciphered that whole picture. But two or three together have. Can I see a hand of anybody who sees anything up here? I've already given you enough clues to see at least one thing besides that person down here with the pot belly. Yes, ma'am. That was the one. Okay. We all agree this is a kind of a humanoid who looks a little huskier and a little bow-legged here compared to this one over here. Can anybody see anything else? has to do with something that's also over here. And I put a little red spot to help you. You need more clues. Bob, here's your chance for your grade. <laughs> Same thing you said in class. Now, let me give you a clue. This is the solar system. There's the sun. There's Mercury. There's Venus. There's Earth offset to show where it came from. There's Mars, there's Jupiter, bigger, Jupiter is big, there's Saturn, here come Uranus and Neptune, Pluto is little again. Can you find the same thing on the picture at the right? Yeah. Ah, here's the Sun, here's Mercury, here's Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter is big. Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, little Pluto. Now let's see if we have any chemists in the crowd. Here is carbon. This is the nucleus of carbon with two inner electrons here and four electrons in the next orbit. 
to show the people out in outer space that we are a form of life based on carbon. Watch this element over here. Two electrons here, six electrons in the next shell, makes a total of eight electrons. That's oxygen. That shows that we have an atmosphere of oxygen on the Earth. And to tell you the truth, that's as much of this picture as I know. I don't know what these things over here are or what this thing down the center is. So there's the next effort that was made. In 1974, Drake sent this picture with the most powerful radio burst ever produced on Earth into outer space. Well, if a radio signal works with that kind of a burst, maybe we ought to try something more elaborate. In 1975, and that's getting a little closer now, two more astronomers decided to listen in on stars that are nearby, not just the two that Drake sends signals to, but to 600 or so more. And the answer was that they heard absolutely nothing that could be interpreted as an intelligent signal. Then in 1977, the most elaborate message to space that has so far been conceived was sent out on the two spaceships called Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, the ones that brought back or sent back those beautiful pictures of Saturn's rings and Jupiter and so on. On those spaceships, Voyager 1 and 2, which have since gone beyond Jupiter and Saturn and will go to Uranus and take pictures of that in a few years and then go into outer space, there is a recording, a photograph record, a long playing record, gold-plated, that runs for two hours. What's on that record? Well, scientists got together and decided that if we're going to send a time capsule into space, which is what we're doing, we ought to emphasize music. So of the two hours, 90 minutes is music. Beethoven, Bach, not too much Bach because we don't want to brag too much. We might discourage the people out there. I'm quoting from Sagan. If they hear only Bach, they'd say, well, they're so intelligent, we don't want to get near them. So there's jazz, and there's folk, and there's country, and there's rock. 90 minutes of this, if they have the right playback speed. If they don't, it might even sound better. <laughs> and then comes 30 minutes of talking. Who should do the talking? Well, in the 30 minutes of talking, there are 55 languages. Now, suppose they don't understand any of those languages. Well, we think they will, because in World War II, we were able to crack almost every code known. With computers on the Earth today, it is believed that there is no such thing as a coded message or language that we cannot decipher. I mean, given enough time, with a computer, you can do things fast, you see. Well, this was during the Carter administration. So President Carter gave a greeting. The United Nations gave a greeting. And so floating out there are politicians and greetings from a great many different people. But that's not all. We want to send the sounds of Earth. There's a whole book about this by Carl Sagan called Murmurs of Earth. 
in which he gives you the whole rundown of everything that has been included on the record. There's a baby crying. There is a train. There's rain falling. There are animals from the jungle. There's a car engine. There's a steamboat. There's a rocket being launched. Murmurs of Earth. Again, the chances of it being found, very slim. And if it is found, millions of years from now. Altogether, to round up this first part of the discussion, we have conducted about 30 searches of stars, both near and far, thousands of stars, since 1960, and not one intelligent signal has been identified. Either it was too dim to hear, or it was unintelligible to our technology. Does that mean there is no life within that parameter? Like I said last time, we just don't know. We don't know. We're going to talk a little bit later about UFOs and how credible they are, whether they exist or whether they don't exist. But right now, what I want to emphasize is that there has not been, in any of the scientific searches for life, shouldn't we sit down now and see of what the probability is of finding anybody out there? Well, Frank Drake, who, as I said, is probably the leading exponent of looking for life in space, has come up with an equation of the likelihood of intelligence in outer space, known variously as the Drake equation, the Sagan equation, the Drake-Sagan equation, or the West Bank equation. <laughs> Where did West Bank come in? Well, one of the largest movable radio telescopes on the Earth is at West Bank, Virginia, the National Radio Observatory, and that's where this equation was first dreamed up. N is the number of planets that might have life that we can contact in our galaxy. Now, our galaxy, the Milky Way, has about 200 billion stars in it, like the Sun. It's about 80,000 light years across. It means if you started a signal on one end of it, telephone call on one end, it would take 80,000 years for the signal to get to the other end. Now, where are we located in the Milky Way? We're located in the suburbs. We're not in the center of the Milky Way, much as that may come as a surprise to people who like to be the center of everything and have the sun rising and setting on them. We are not in the center of anything. We're not in the center of the solar system. We're not in the center of the galaxy. We're not in the center of the universe. We're not in the center of anything, astronomically speaking. We're in the suburbs. If we were in the center of our galaxy, there would be no nighttime. Some people might prefer that, but there would be no nighttime. The stars would be so close together that it would be just as bright at night as it is in the daytime. In fact, even where we are in the suburbs, it would be just as bright at night as in the daytime if there weren't so much junk in space. Half of the entire universe is dust. We talk about pollution. Half of the universe is pollution. 
If that pollution were not out there, the sky would be just as bright now as it is in the middle of the day. That whole question is called Olber's Paradox. It's a very mathematical thing. But for many years, astronomers could not understand why it's dark at night. Any kid in grade school could tell you it's dark at night because the sun went down. <laughs> but if the universe goes on indefinitely, then there should be stars everywhere. And they should add up, no matter where you look, to the same brightness as noonday. And the only answer to the question is that space is full of dust, keeping the light out. That's the present state-of-the-art thinking on it. Now, Frank Drake said, to get at the number of planets in the Milky Way galaxy of 200 billion stars, here's what you have to multiply. R times F sub P times N sub E times F sub L times F sub I F sub T times L, where the factors are as follows. R is the rate at which stars are formed in the Milky Way. Stars are constantly dying. Stars are constantly being formed. How many new stars are being formed in our Milky Way of 200 billion stars every year? Next, what fraction of R can be expected to have planets going around them? Next, what is the number of these planets that has the right environment for life? Next, what fraction of those that have the environment does have life? Then, what fraction of those has got to as far as intelligent life that can think? Next, what fraction of that has, whoops, I forgot the end in here, has the right technology for receiving a signal or sending a signal as far as the Earth? And finally, big L is how long is the average civilization in the universe? In other words, how many years have we got to hear from somebody that has become intelligent enough to send us a signal? Then when you multiply all those fractions together, we can tell you how many planets there are in the Milky Way that we can correspond with. Well, let's take a look at the estimates. Let's put the numbers in. Now there are three schools of thought. Number one, there are the optimistic people who say that there are 10 new stars formed out of 200 billion every year in the Milky Way. And then notice the succession of ones, that the fraction of those that have planets is one-tenth, one out of 10. That's not just a hit and miss. That's based on our solar system. We have nine planets, and one has life. There may be another planet out there, too, by the way. I just heard Clive Tomble talk two weeks ago, who discovered Pluto, and he said there might be another one there, so I'm saying there might be another one. So he found it, I didn't. Now, if from there we go very optimistically and say that every one of those planets that was formed there can have the right ecology, has developed life, has developed intelligent life, but only one-fifth of them has the technology because we didn't have it for a long time either, you know. It took us a little while. And what was his last one here? How long or how many years does life last on a planet? 
Well, how long has it lasted here? Well, we're not sure how long it's going to last, you know, we're teetering on the brink. Well, the optimistic uh, guess is that it may last 100 million years, 10 to the 8th is 100 million. If you put all those numbers together and multiply them, you'll get, as you see here, 10 times 1 is 1.2 times this, 2 times 10 to the 8th, or 200 million planets that we might correspond with. Pretty good chance, right? Now let's cut the odds down a little. Still give it 10 here, and let's say only a half a planet. How can you have a half a planet? Well, that means if you have 20 planets, one of them will go. And put all the other numbers in, and say, as things are going now, life only lasts a million years on the Earth. Now you're down to one million planets. Let's get pessimistic, like Senator Proxmire. As a matter of fact, Senator Proxmire has more to do with stopping the search for extraterrestrial life than any other human being on Earth, because he just passed a bill in the Senate that went all the way through Congress to stop the search. They cut the budget for the search for extraterrestrial life. Well, let's see what the poor prospects are. If only one star is formed in the Milky Way every year out of 200 billion, and four-tenths of them have planets, and put all the rest through, and cut this down, and also give the lifetime on Earth of only 100 years. That's pretty pessimistic, isn't it? One lifetime and a little more. Then you're down to four planets. Now, there are some people who think that's too optimistic. And the present thinking among many astronomers is that we are the only form of life in the universe based on this equation. And that therefore, not only is it nonsense to try to perceive any other form or send signals to receive them, but we had better direct our attention to doing what we can on this earth to maintain this form of life. Therefore, what are the prospects of the future searches? Well, let me show you what is being proposed and what Senator Proxmire has vetoed as of a year or so ago. Well, he introduced a bill that was passed not to allocate any more funds. This is a field of radio telescopes known as Project Cyclops. Now, the name is not important, but the idea is to take telescopes 300 feet across, that's one football field in each one of these, times 1,500 and connect them all together into a single instrument to see whether we can perceive any signals. Now, what would this cost? Well, it would cost about the same amount of money as the shot to the moon. Now, we did that. President Kennedy got everybody psyched up in 1960 and said, before this decade is out, we're going to send men to the moon and return them safely to Earth. And we did. And it cost $20 billion. Now, what did we learn? Well, we learned that we don't know as much about the moon as we thought. But more important than that, we developed a lot of technology that is part of our everyday life. We have microcomputer chips. We have forms of communication. We have medical technology on and on that we wouldn't have had otherwise. This has been true in the past. 
During every large war, we develop technology that has benefited everyone. Does that mean that we should start a war so that we'll learn more? No, some people say, let's just do something like this. Because the $20 billion that is going to be spent on this thing here will teach us a great deal more about all kinds of technology than we know now. Some think that's nonsense, and that we could spend the $20 billion doing a lot of other things. Well, while we're being fantastic, there is another proposal. And this is a very recent one. An astronomer by the name of Frank Tipler has come up with the idea that if there is life in outer space, and if it has existed for any period of time, the entire universe ought to be full of the spaceships that these forms of life have sent out. In other words, if they're so smart out there, we would have seen them by now. And since we haven't seen any, there aren't any. This is the hottest debate going in astronomy at the present time, this year. More ink is being spilled in the magazines professionally on the debate between Sagan and Tipler than on anything else in astronomy at the present time. Tipler has challenged Carl Sagan to a debate on whether there is any intelligent life in outer space. Sagan says there are millions of them. Frank Tipper says there isn't one, including the Earth, with intelligent life. Otherwise, we wouldn't have people like Carl Sagan proposing these things. Now, it's a hot issue. I'm not taking sides. I'm telling you what the two parts of the battle are shaping up to be. The debate is occurring in magazines like Physics Today. I have these with me this evening if you'd like to look at a little more detail. Physics Today, Sky and Telescope, other astronomical journals. I don't know who's going to win, but Frank Tipler has gone even farther. You see, these people are imaginative individuals. They're not just beating the air. Carl Sagan comes with a tremendous background in astronomy, and so does Tipler. And he has come up, Tipler furthermore, with a proposal that makes even Sagan's proposals look timid. This is a sketch by Frank Tipler of what is called a von Neumann machine. Von Neumann, or as some people anglicize it, von Neumann, was a brilliant Nobel Prize winning mathematician. Died an untimely death a few years ago, but before he came up, with a mathematical idea, and in fact much of von Neumann's ideas are in computer language today, but the most fantastic thing he came up with was that someday, if computers keep going the way they are, it will be possible for a computer to reproduce itself. One of the features of life is reproduction. If you ask a number of different people how you can tell whether something is alive, depends on what especially the doctor is, or which particular doctor you're consulting. One of them will say, look for brain waves. If the brain waves are flat, the person is dead. Take his kidneys off. Another person will say, is he breathing? Another doctor will say, is his heart beating? Another one will say, sooner or later, unless the thing reproduces, it is not a form of life. You don't see rocks multiplying by themselves. 
but you see plants doing it and animals doing it. Consequently, if we ever make machines that have intelligence equal to that of human beings, the only way we will be able to tell whether they have made the grade is whether they can reproduce themselves. Now, we've already made robots that can go down the line and test themselves and throw themselves into the junk pile if they do not meet all the tests. We do this partially already in car manufacturing plants. Let's be thankful they don't put people through the line. <laughs> well, what Frank Tipler has drawn here is a machine. Since a lifetime is not enough to go up there, the people would die before they'd get anywhere, you see. Even if they'd reproduce in space and teach their children how to run the spaceship, it would take 20 generations to get to the first star. Consequently, von Neumann said, we've got to send machines up there that will not only search for life in outer space, but that will reproduce themselves and look everywhere. And that in only a few hundred million years, the entire universe will be filled with von Neumann machines. Now, if there are people in outer space, and if they're more intelligent than we are, Hitler says in Challenging Sagan, von Neumann machines ought to be here now. Where are they, he says. You see, how can a machine reproduce itself? Where is it going to get the raw materials? Well, the same place we get our raw materials, from a planet. And so this benign machine here has latched on to a little planet, has looked for it. There are millions of these little planets out there. They're called asteroids. And they go out there, take the materials they need from the asteroid, and build another Neumann machine. And that one will take off on its own somewhere else. Now you say it's fantastic. What do these people do? They ought to work for a living instead of thinking up crazy ideas. <laughs> well, in going through the technology of a von Neumann machine, you see, von Neumann gave us computers. So this is the proposal. Well, I said we would end up with a little discussion of UFOs. If Tipler says, where are they? Thousands and perhaps millions of people on the Earth say, we've seen them. They are called UFOs. Now, in my estimation, there's only one book worth reading on UFOs, and it was written by Dr. J. Allen Hynek. He was also at the meeting two weeks ago in Illinois, and I had a long discussion with him. I know Dr. Von Hynek, Von Hynek, Dr. Hynek very well indeed, and he's a reputable astronomer. He's not a charlatan. He's not a fly-by-night. He's not somebody who's ready for the psychiatrist's couch who sees things flying in the night, but rather J. Allen Hynek was hired by the Air Force to investigate UFOs for 20 years in a report called Blue Book. Well, the Air Force closed Project Blue Book a few years ago and came to the conclusion that there are no UFOs. But in the files of Project Blue Book are hundreds and hundreds of sightings that the Air Force cannot explain. And consequently, Dr. Hynek said, it is time that people knew about this, and so he wrote a book called The UFO Experience. One chapter in that book is called Strange Encounters of the Third Kind. In fact, Dr. Hynek is in the movie, although he's not one of the main characters. He just walks through the last scene where the people are getting in the ship. I rose right out of the seat in the theater. When I saw that, people thought I was ready for the UFO myself. I said, there he is, there he is. <laughs> now, 
Now, what does Heineck say in the UFO experience? He says there are three kinds of evidence that UFOs are real. Number one is they have been seen by reputable people, airline pilots, policemen, people whose life and their work depends on their being reputable and honest. They don't always tell the newspaper about it for fear of losing their jobs. So people have reported UFOs and have reported them independently. Heineck is so convinced that UFOs are real, he has started in Chicago a place called the Center for UFO Studies. And I will give you the hotline toll-free number later that you can call if you've seen one. And if two people call who have seen the same UFO independently of each other, he'll send somebody out to talk to you. His files are full of independently sighted UFOs that have been reported with identical features and descriptions. Secondly, strange encounters of the second kind are the UFOs that leave markings on the Earth. Some place where there was something burned, where a piece fell off, or what have you. Those have also been documented by Heineck. And the strange encounters of the third kind, of course, are the ones where beings have been sighted. And the book recounts interviews that Heineck has had with people who have done the sighting and have drawn identical pictures of the beings in places thousands of miles apart. In other words, he went to Kentucky where people shot a being from a UFO and he asked them to draw a picture of the object. They drew a picture, he put it in his file. Then he went to New Zealand to a convent where the sisters said they have seen objects and people landing and taking off for years. And they drew pictures also and they were identical to the pictures drawn by the mountain men in Kentucky. It is from this kind of evidence that Heineck is convinced that UFOs are real and should be investigated. They're not secret sources of power from Russia or someplace. The, the Russians are actively investigating UFOs as well. They want to know if we're putting up something that's secret, just like we want to know if they're putting the UFOs up. But Heineck does not believe that UFOs are physical. He thinks that UFOs are probes from outer space, image production, investigative beams that are sent here to check out our planet. Now, is he right? Should money be spent on that kind of investigation? We don't know. Heineck's organization is privately financed. It's adequately funded because there are a lot of people who are interested in promoting the search. Finally, there is one other proposal in space, and that is to colonize it. Dr. Gerard O'Neill of Princeton University has drawn the plans and is looking for federal funding to send 10,000 human beings into space forever. That means line up right over here and I'll take your name. Taxpayers' money, you'll never come back. And in this huge city that he plans to build for some $40 billion, 10,000 people would have a balanced ecology, there would be farms with soil from the moon where the tomatoes get this big, because moon soil is much more fertile, it's not worn out like ours. The asteroids would be mined. And besides, 
the likelihood that the Earth will be blown up is much greater than the likelihood of failure of a Gerard O'Neill colony in space. That's his thinking. So if life on Earth is to survive, it better get off the Earth. That's the proposal. Okay, if we can have the lights now, please. I want to stop here for a question period and then a few comments on the other topic that is on this evening's symposium. Yes, ma'am. Well, I will only give you Heineck's opinion on that because I'm not uh, in a position to make a judgment about what the Air Force is doing. But Heineck, who worked with them for so many years, has a definite opinion. Heineck's opinion of why the Air Force closed Blue Book is that the Air Force does not want the American people to think that there is something in space that they don't know about. The Air Force gets a lot of money. And if the American people feel that our Air Force does not know what's going on in space, they might get the idea that we should fire the top brass of the Air Force. That's Heineck's theory. Now, you make up your own mind. I can't speak for the Air Force. Yes? Well, I suppose that the idea of putting this plaque on perhaps came rather late in the development of the spaceship. Uh, do you have an idea of how it could have been improved? That's not the question. I mean, I just want to know why it was only three weeks. Yeah. Tap yeah, there was a great deal of flack, as you may imagine, about that plaque being put on there and what kind of uh, dirty picture we're sending in space and all those things. Um, the murmurs of Earth, there was more time for that and more people were involved. It's a much more complete record of our civilization. So I don't know why the series, probably because nobody thought of it until the end. Yes, sir? How does Heineck impress you? That's correct. I first met Heineck in 1968 when I interviewed him for my book on science and religion. When you mentioned the word atheist, it came to mind that Heineck was the only people, only person of the people around the world I talked to of the leading scientists who had a prepared statement about what he believes about God. So when you say atheist, you mean UFOs, because Heineck is a devout believer in God. But Heineck has told me that when he started, as you say, he did not think there were UFOs. But the more he studied them and the more he saw the Air Force records, the more convinced he became that there are some. He still has not seen one himself, but he's convinced that it's worth studying. He doesn't want to use government funds to do it, 
he says, and Sagan and Heineck are rivals in this regard. They both believe in life in outer space, but not at the same form. Heineck says instead of spending all that money sending those radio signals off, let's do a concerted search of what these UFO sightings are. So he's still not convinced they're there, but he's convinced it's worth studying the topic. So I would call him an agnostic on UFOs. Yes, sir. I understand that uh, the University of Colorado was commissioned uh, to study the situation. That's correct. That's, that's yeah, that's the Air Force study. Right. All the way down the line. Yes, that was the Blue Book study. It was done at the University of Colorado, and the chief of it was Condon. Condon, the former chief of the Bureau of Standards, and he is a reputable scientist, and he was put in charge of the study. And they came out with the conclusion that there are no reputable sightings or anything worth investigating. Now, in contrast to that, I can tell you that I have asked a lot of people, uh, including our air traffic controllers, whether there are UFOs. I went to the air traffic control center when it was still at MacArthur. And I took my physics class in there one day, and I asked the supervisor of the air traffic control room whether he believes in UFOs. Now, he didn't know why I'm asking this. So he said, why don't you ask one of the operators? So I went up to one of the radar scopes. It was quite dark in there. You know, I didn't see the man's face when I asked him this question. I said, do you ever see any UFOs on the screen? And his immediate reply was, yes, I see them every day. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, any blip on this screen that does not respond when I ask it to give its identification numbers is a UFO, and I write it in my book, UFO. Then I say to the thing, if you don't identify yourself within a certain number of seconds, we're going to scramble our fighters. And then usually the UFO identifies itself in Russian. And that's on the East Coast here, the Russian fighters testing our defenses. But every so often, he said, when I do that and ask the blip to identify itself, identify itself, it disappears. It disappears, and I write UFO. He didn't hesitate a minute. He must have been asked that question before. So if you look at the air traffic control records, there are a lot of UFOs on it. I understand that. Yeah, I didn't hear that. But I do personally know. Uh, policeman at Kennedy Airport, who's now retired, who told me of an evening where the one of the runways at Kennedy was shut down for an hour and a half because of a UFO. And he said every pilot knew it, every policeman at KTFK knew it, but we didn't tell anybody. We didn't want to be fired. Yes, ma'am. Yes. It looks pretty much like an American spaceman with a suit on, with an antenna sticking out, and a wrinkled suit, and so on. Yes. So, and it looked like it had a helmet on with slits for eyes. Much smaller, though, than a human being. The Kentucky people say they shot one. There were three or four that came out of the ship. They had Kentucky rifles. They shot at one. It fell over. The other beings carried it back in the ship and took off. There was an NBC special on this a few years ago with Hart uh, called UFOs, Do You Believe? One of the best programs so far that I show my class every year that had Heineck in it and some of his reports. Uh, there is also, I should tell you, a ham radio network on UFOs called MUFON. 
M-U-F-O-N, U-F-O in a minute, MUFON, where ham radio operators have agreed to share with each other on the ham network sightings of UFOs and describe them. And not long ago, a friend of mine who is in MUFON came to my house and brought me a set of paintings that he made from descriptions on MUFON of outer space beings that have been reported. And he said, if I'd be so kind enough, if I see Heineck the next time, the one was an oil painting, the police presented to him with his compliments, and it's now hanging in Heineck's living room in Evanston. So did it have like the two arms and two Yes, uh, yes. Uh, let's see if I have one. <laughs> I don't think I made a, a an overhead of this, but I think I brought a picture. Oh, and here's one a student of mine drew. I had a girl in class a few years ago um, who was followed home by a UFO. <laughs> and she said she can't tell anybody because they're all laughing at her, and I said, I won't laugh. So she drew it for me. It's not very elaborate. It's a flying saucer with lights in it here. And she and her boyfriend were coming home. This is in New Jersey. And she said all of a sudden their car stopped, 2 in the morning. And they looked up, and here was this huge thing about 60 feet long. And the car didn't work anymore. This is a common occurrence, by the way, UFO sightings that the ignition cuts out on the car. And her boyfriend wanted to get out and look at it, and she was scared to death. She said, let's go home. I'm scared. Oh, no, this is my chance. So he gets out and looks at it. And they get back in the car and go home, and the thing starts up and follows them. So it parked right over their heads, she said, right over the car, while she ran into the house to get her mother and father to see this thing. And by the time they came out again, it was gone. So you say, well, who knows what kind of person this was. So I told her to call Heineck. So he has his sighting, and I don't know whether he's going to come out and talk to her or not. But you see, there were two people who saw it, but they weren't independent sightings. They were in the same car. Now, if somebody a mile away had seen the same thing, those would be independent or efficacious. When I was in Houston one time at the Space Center, I took a taxi cab out there, and we started talking about UFOs. And the cab driver, whether he had rehearsed this a long time ahead or not, said, oh, you're in the right place for UFOs, I see them all the time. He said, I've got some that are as long as a Zeppelin, and I've got some that are like for VW, what a size do you want? So either he was primed for the subject or not, I don't know. Yes, sir? Well, are they real? have you read the book, The Andresen Affair? Yes, yes. The most unusual sighting of a UFO that I have ever seen is the Andresen Affair. Now, Andresen is the name of a family. And I don't know if I recall all the details. I read the book at least a year ago. And I think this was in Vermont. Uh, this family had an experience with UFOs that they did not report for a long, long time. A deeply religious family. In the first place, they didn't want to record anything that would sound like they're off the rocker or something, or people would make fun of them. 
But then, finally, because it affected the woman so deeply and her daughter, who were both involved, they went to psychiatrists and hypnotists. And by taking the people back, the woman and her daughter independently, in the psychiatrist's office by hypnosis, they both re reported the same story of having been taken on board a UFO for a journey through the solar system and the universe and brought back again. And their two stories coincided to a, a very remarkable amount of detail. So if you want to read something that really blows your mind on UFOs, read the book The Andresen Affair. And the people I've shown it to, and my colleagues, uh, professors of astronomy, uh, take this book seriously. There is no rational explanation. There, uh, there is no way of saying that these people made up what they are talking about. Their entire background and personality uh, vitiates against this. My Oh, yes, yes. Yes. Right. Some of the people under hypnosis drew star charts the way computers show us these stars would look from another galaxy, for example, yeah. or from another part of our galaxy. But since then, they've been discovered. Some of them have uh, been fakes, yes. I can't, I can't really pass a judgment on that because I'm not familiar with all the cases. But I think it's entirely possible that that was a fabrication. That people who are knowledgeable in uh, constellation work will be able to say, yes, that could be made up. Yes, That's true. fair, of course, you have to understand that there's no such thing as a theory in astronomy or any other science that is universally accepted. And what scientists like to do more than anything else in conventions is to take hot shots at each other's theories. I want to talk more about that in two weeks because one of the speakers that I say in Peoria two weeks ago spoke about the extent of the universe. And that's what we want to talk about in two weeks. How large is the universe? What do we think at the present time is the history, extent, and future of the universe. This is a topic called cosmology. And some of the newer theories there are absolutely in total opposition to what we have learned up to now. It seems that many people sit there all day and try to think of a way to shoot down an existing theory, especially if it has been accepted and time-honored. So Sagan disagreeing with the other people is not altogether unusual, but it is unusual. And knowing Sagan in a personal interview, I can tell you that he is a, uh, a very strong-willed person, which is not altogether a bad thing either, but he does not like to be criticized. Now, that's putting it uh, kind of charitably, I guess. But, uh, 
Sagan had a, a debate with Volokovsky who differed from his theories. He has debates with Heineck. Uh, he is probably the best known popularizer of astronomy in our time, but he oversteps himself. He, he, in order to establish his points, he makes statements that are not verifiable. On Cosmos, he did that. There's no question about it. Other astronomers turn him off for that reason. Uh, there's always a temptation if somebody doesn't believe you or in order to impress somebody that you overstate your case and lose your credibility. And I think in some respects, Carl Sagan has done that. Now, if he accepts Tipler's challenge, there's another overtone to this which is very close to my heart. And that is that you cannot discuss the question of life in outer space or the origin, extent, and history of the universe without talking about religion. Now, Carl Sagan will deny this. Carl Sagan, in Cosmos and in his talks with me, made it very clear that someday science will answer all questions. That's called humanism. Well, most scientists are not humanists. The people I spoke to, for the most part, are religious people. In fact, Frank Tipler and some of the people, other books I have with me tonight, the latest books on whether there is life in outer space, I said before, are reaching the conclusion that we are the only form of intelligent life in the universe. The book I brought with me tonight as an example is called Are We Alone? by two reputable astronomers. And on the last page, they agree with Tipler and say we are probably the only form of intelligent life in the universe, and there is no explanation for this except that God put it here. There is no scientific way of explaining that we should be unique in the solar system, in the entire universe. How can we be alone? If the Drake equation comes out n equals 1, then the next question is why. And why is not a question a scientist can answer. The only answer to the question why Nobel Prize winners around the world have told me personally is God only knows. It is absolutely a, an artificial thing to divorce science from religion. The theories of physics and astronomy today are so interwoven between philosophy, if you want to call that, instead of religion, some people don't like the word religion, it raises hackles, so call it metaphysics. Between metaphysics and natural science, they're indistinguishable. Scientists have told me out at Brookhaven that the only way you can understand the structure of the atom is to study Buddhism. What? Yeah. Richard Feynman, who received the Nobel Prize in nuclear physics, has written that the sevenfold way of Buddhism is the only way to get a hold on what's going on inside the atom. I don't know if he's right. We'll never know. We don't know, John. <laughs> we just don't know. But it is an artificial barrier if we say we must not mix the two. People are not separate entities, scientists told me. You cannot keep your science in one box and your philosophy and emotions in another box. You are an integral human being. Heineck told me that if you live your life only by scientific theories, you're only half a human being. And I hope that the time is coming when in the United States, 
we can do in our educational system what Europe has done for centuries, and that is to educate people totally and expose them to all forms of science and philosophy without passing laws that you must talk about these things. Newton did it, Einstein did it, von Neumann did it, so why can't our kids in school? It's absolutely idiotic, so that's a personal opinion. But I have a right as an American to agitate for this combination without which we cannot educate total human beings. Well, I got a little carried away right there. Yes? Okay. We've talked a lot about is it like a Yes. If we are the only like only thing that has life, and we are the most intelligent, what has been done to put life on other planets? I don't mean to set content to go out start with a bacteria or somewhere else to support life and see how now the question is, what have we done to start life elsewhere in the universe? And the answer is that we have scrupulously avoided sending any form of life anywhere. The clean room of our space corporations is much cleaner than our hospitals. We want to make sure that we don't start life anywhere else. Now that's a decision we made politically. You may be in favor of let's go out and see how long it takes for life to reach its form here on Earth. Now, there are a lot of people, I should tell you this too, who absolutely doubt is much too weak, uh, who do not believe that there is the vaguest possibility that putting a microbe or germ on another planet will ever turn into intelligent life. The possibilities, I just read, one astronomer said, of life evolving on another planet from a single organism is the same probability that you have for a hurricane blowing through a used car lot and making a Cadillac out of junk. <laughs> Evolution is falling on hard times in the scientific community, the press notwithstanding. But I hear more and more at conventions of astronomers and physicists particularly, not so much among biologists, objections raised to astronomical cosmic evolution. The Big Bang is in real trouble. The Big Bang theory of the universe is in real trouble. There are two prominent astronomers at Palomar and elsewhere who are writing papers and delivering lectures that the Big Bang theory is absolutely without foundation. Now, we're going to go into that again in two weeks. I'm not saying that I want to take sides in the issue. What I want to make sure as an educator is that the students I...